The Old Pilot's Plain Tales The Court of Public Opinion It was Napoleon Bonaparte who said, Four hostile newspapers are more to be feared than a thousand bayonets. A theme repeated by Oscar Wilde who wrote, In the old days men had the rack, now they have the press. This is a story of caution, not to help you avoid a flying mishap or disaster, but perhaps how to be careful with the fame you may achieve afterwards. It was the 1950s, and America had been through a world war, and was now firmly stuck in a cold war. McCarthyism had been rife, and hundreds of Americans had been accused of being communists or at least sympathetic with their aims. Suspicions and accusations could wreck someone's career, indeed their entire life. First Lieutenant Dave Steves was a United States Air Force jet fighter pilot. He had achieved his childhood dream and he was now an instructor pilot on the Air Force's new T-33A Shooting Star jet trainer. It was the 9th of May 1957 when Lieutenant Steves opened up the throttle of the Allison turbojet and sent his aircraft accelerating down the runway at Oakland's Municipal Airport near San Francisco and then up into the high overcast over Fresno, Bakersfield, Riverside and Blythe en route to Luke Air Force Base in Phoenix. A little after 11 in the morning he made a call to Fresno Radio reporting his position as overhead the city at 33,500 feet. On his left, below the clouds, lay the Sierra Nevada mountains, amongst which was Mount Whitney, which reached nearly 14,500 feet. He had been this way many times and had seen the rock and ice of the majestic Sierras, beautiful and awe-inspiring, but equally worrying to a pilot of early single-engine jets. Only a few months before, a fellow pilot, Glenn Sutton, had disappeared amongst the Sierras and neither he nor his jet had ever been found. A few minutes south of Fresno, Steves heard a boom from behind him before he was knocked violently unconscious. He came around to the smell of smoke. The aircraft was throwing him against his straps and the stick was unresponsive. Still dazed and unsure of what was going on, he had to react quickly. He reached for the canopy jettison lever, and the protective perspex was blown clear of the cockpit. Moving his feet up into the stirrups of the ejector seat, he locked his straps, and then reached for the pair of yellow arming handles fitted to the front of the seat. He raised them. Inside the right one was the firing lever, and squeezing it, he fired the explosive cartridge that punched him out of the aircraft. Once free of the seat, he could reach his parachute D-ring, and with a violent jolt, his chute popped open. Glancing up, he could see that there were some long rips in the origin white fabric, but he didn't have long to fall before the rugged, snow-cloud mountains came rushing up at him. 
bracing, he hit hard on a bare patch of rock sticking out from a peak before spinning off and falling against the side of the mountain. Moments later, he stopped falling as his chute caught up in the rocks and ice above him. He was alive. Dave gingerly undid his harness and carefully untangled himself from the parachute straps. Leaning back against the steep slope, he looked down and realised he was on the edge of a snow-filled basin, but some ways below he could see a sort of cove with some rocks and a couple of withered trees. He carefully clambered up to release his parachute, which he bundled up and threw down the slope, and then he started to climb down. He had to face the slope, digging hand and footholds and pausing often to warm his icy fingers. He wasn't dressed for this kind of an environment with a summer lightweight flying suit, a thin jacket and soft kid leather flying gloves that were soon worn through. It took him several hours to join his parachute, which had bounced and rolled some way away, but eventually he got a chance to rest, and the adrenaline that had kept him going drained out of his system. From where he lay, he still had a ways to go to get to the floor of the basin, and feeling cold and stiff, he rose to continue his climb down, but sharp pains from both ankles shot through his legs and he fell hard. For the first time in his ordeal, he began to fear that he might die in this cold and desolate place. The clouds had lowered, and he realised that no search aircraft would stand a chance of finding him. He was in a real survival situation, and he would need to summon up all his courage and skill if he wanted to live. He unbundled his parachute and made a rough sledge out of the seat cushion, gingerly sliding down until he eventually reached flatter ground. Once there, he crawled on his hands and right leg, dragging his more painful left leg behind him, until he eventually managed to reach the cove that he had seen earlier. Kneeling with his hands, he dug a shallow pit under a fallen log, and he lined it with his parachute. As the sun started to fall, the temperature dropped dramatically, and he knew he needed a fire to stay alive. He used his knife to hack some of the rotted wood into small chunks, and then with a little paper he managed to light a small fire in a nearby stump. As he laid back into his parachute with his feet towards the little smouldering fire, he contemplated his situation. After abandoning his aircraft, David didn't have much on him. His maps and many other things, like his military survival kit, had been lost during the violence of the ejection. He still had his Allen and Hopkins revolver, plus some extra bullets, his nail clippers, a few books of matches and some paper, but not much else, except his little radiation detector monitor in case of nuclear attack. David shivered his way through three freezing nights, and when the weak sunlight came through the overcast again, he knew that he had to move or he would die there in the snow, high amongst the mountains. 
Shaking the snow that had fallen during the night from off his parachute, he realised that his ankles were feeling a little better, so he began to move. Limping, sometimes crawling through the snow and rocks, he picked his way along a series of tiny ponds that showed him a way to lower ground. The movement warmed him, and he began to feel a bit better, particularly when the snow numbed his ankles. As the sun fell, he had left the basin and was heading down. The next few days were a nightmare. Hungry and only eating snow, he stumbled onwards through the short days and then holed up to endure the long, cold nights. His strength was failing, but he knew to stop meant death. Occasionally he found enough wood to make a real fire, but for most of the time he awoke soaked and freezing cold. He was now following a river, and in a swampy grove where he saw some grouse tantalisingly close, he got his first break since the ejection. Beside the river he saw a sign which read, Simpson Meadow, Ten Miles. With renewed energy he pressed on, but then lost the trail in huge snowdrifts. Counting back, he realised, was it even possible, that he had been without food for fourteen days. A few hours later, he blundered into a deserted campsite. He could see a storage cache, out of reach high up in the trees, but he found a garbage pit, which he plundered. One of the cleaner tins had the remnants of some sticky syrup, which he greedily licked clean. Pressing on with heavy legs, he stopped to rest at noon, sitting down on a log and resting his bearded chin in his hands. Peering ahead through a break in the trees, he saw salvation, a log cabin. Breathless from exertion, within a few minutes he reached the door. It was locked and no one came to his calls, and it took him hours, but eventually he managed to find a branch strong enough to breach the sturdy door. Inside, it was little more than a shed, but it was packed high with tools and equipment that the forest rangers had stored there, and on the wall, an inventory of the contents. Searching down the list, his eyes fell on the word foodstuffs. After a frenzied search, he found a couple of boxes which, for a starving man, were a treasure trove of beans, cornstarch, condiments, dehydrated soup, hash and rice. David Steve had found Simpson Meadow Ranger Station, but his troubles were far from over. However, with the equipment and protection he found there, at least he wasn't going to die freezing up amongst the mountains. Freeing his feet from his boots for the first time in two weeks, he screamed in agony as they swelled up before his eyes. For two days he lay delirious in a fever, waking only long enough to eat the hash and make some soup while it snowed outside. When he was able to think clearly again, he assessed his situation. He found some maps and worked out that he was deep in the Sequoia and Kings Canyon National Parks. There was nothing resembling a town or even dwellings marked. 
Indeed, he was only 35 miles from Mount Whitney, the highest point in the United States. Two trails led out, and after regaining some strength and carrying some of the more useful equipment he found, he set off down the Tehipite Valley. David's journey was far from over and would contain yet more drama. Facing sheer cliffs hundreds of feet high, he needed to cross a strong river to continue. Swept from his feet in the icy cold water, he plunged down a waterfall and was lucky to escape with his life. The crossing proved pointless, as he was trapped by a dead end, and the weather began to turn. He tried to climb the rocks in front of him, but had to admit it was impossible, and he began the long trudge back to the ranger station. A month had now passed, and back in the hut he had to regain his strength. He fished and set up a crude trap for deer using his revolver. He had some success and tried to feed himself back to strength from the deer meat, but he knew he had to make another attempt at escape. Now out of bullets for his gun, in absolute desperation, he lit a forest fire. He knew this was a terrible thing to do, but surely someone would see the smoke and come to investigate. His blaze leapt from tree to tree, and for five days and nights it burned. An aircraft flew over, and he desperately signalled with a mirror, but to no avail. The days passed, and he knew he had to try to walk out again. Turning the other way, he had to climb a 10,000-foot ridge, but the weather was warming up and the snow starting to melt. He was shocked at how thin his arms and legs looked, but he pressed on, up and up over the high ground, drinking from streams and fighting the mosquitoes. He was sitting on a rock when he heard the voice, a woman's voice. She said, Hello there. He must have looked a sight, filthy, ragged, scrawny, with matted hair, a straggly beard, and having lost 45 pounds of weight. He tried to explain, but was finding it hard to talk. The woman rode up along with other riders, and David knew he was saved. It took many days to get him out of the mountains and back to civilization, all the while excitedly trying to explain what had happened to him and how he had survived. Once the world found out that a heroic Air Force fighter pilot had survived ejecting from a crippled jet fighter, and then survived 54 days in the wilderness, walking out of appallingly hostile, snow-covered terrain. It was a feeding frenzy. David was brought back to his family, who had been informed by the Air Force that he was missing, presumed dead. With his handsome, rugged good looks returning, and with his stunning wife on his arm, their fairy tale story was featured in all the major newspapers, and New York publishers were bidding for rights to publish. He attended many press conferences, and then, in a shiny new uniform, was flown to Los Angeles to appear on television. A few days later, he was flown back to New York for more interviews, television shows, and meetings with publishers. It was a whirlwind of activity that culminated with an offer 
from the Post editor, Clay Blair, for $10,000 for his story. However, when the story had been told over and over and spread far and wide, I wonder if the Post began to regret their offer as they saw their return on their investment diminishing day by day. David was taken back into the mountains and asked to recreate his journey, but it wasn't easy. With the snow gone and summer growth everywhere, the terrain looked very different, and he had difficulty retracing his steps. In addition, despite an extensive search, no trace of the crash T-33 was found. Also, it appeared that David Steve's backstory wasn't that of the perfect Air Force jet pilot. He'd been unfaithful to his pretty wife before the crash, and their marriage had been on the rocks, with Rita seeking a divorce. His flying career hadn't been going well either. He had a reputation as an officer lacking respect for authority, and during instructor's school, he had only passed with a minimum satisfactory grading in his ground check. Abruptly, the post withdrew its offer, and then began to run stories questioning the authenticity of David Steve's story. They found witnesses willing to question his account. Many lacked any credibility, like that of a pack driver who found some of David's belongings, and the park chief who claimed that his escape would have been extremely difficult. The Post also suggested that his boots weren't worn enough to corroborate his story, but it was mainly the lack of a crash site that brought David's story into question. The rumours grew, with some even claiming that David had flown his aircraft into Mexico so it could be handed over to the Soviets, and the whole survival story was an elaborate ruse. The Air Force stayed silent, and though no formal charges were brought, Lieutenant Steele requested a discharge, which was immediately granted. His career was ruined, and he had been branded a liar. David moved to Fresno and started an aviation firm that flew skydivers and modified aircraft. In his spare time, he would fly over the Sierras, trying to find his crash site and clear his name. A few years later, he was killed at the Boise, Idaho airport when he crashed a modified Stinson aircraft that he had been working on. It was after his death that some Boy Scouts from Los Angeles were on a hiking trip in Dusty Basin in Kings Canyon National Park. They came across the remains of an aircraft canopy. The perspex crazed and broken, but the frame was intact. The following year, it was announced that the serial number matched that of the missing T-33 shooting star that David Steves had been flying the day of his crash. Lieutenant David Steve had at last been vindicated and his amazing story had been proven true. Twelve years too late. If you enjoyed this story, please leave us a review at Apple Podcasts. Plain Tales is a featured segment of the Airline Pilot Guy show. You can 
find us at airlinepilotguy.com. <laughs>